back, guys, to another episode of the JWB Redraft Ramp-Up, where we give you a consumable redraft perspective. Scour back with Tim, just like we did with the wide receiver rooms. We are back to talk running back rooms to monitor and how to think about these rooms and how to go about tackling them for your fantasy team. So we're going to start with Buffalo. We're going to start right at the top of the alphabet, the Buffalo Bills here. A lot of people very hopeful for James Cook to take a big step in year two. They signed Davian Harris in from the Patriots, and then they brought on Latavius Murray as well, who came over from Denver after a productive end to the season. So these three running backs in a room that has been led by Josh Allen for the last two has led to a lot of people kind of planting their flag and deciding which guy they're going to take. And Tim, who is the guy to take from this running back room? So based on the ADP, I'm not super excited about any of them, but if I had to pick one, it would be Harris. His ADP currently is 118. If we compare that to Cook, he's at 74. So if we look at Cook, the available players around Cook, Cook is 74, Christian Kirk 75, Godwin is 76, Mike Evans 77, Pittman 78, Pickens uh, 79, and then we talked about Deontay at 81. So I'm seeing a much better tier of wide receiver which we've as something we referenced yesterday is that I think there's a lot more opportunity for you to take better running backs early and then be able to take the wide receiver value later, or even stack up where you have a very good flex or even your first player off your bench is a very good wide receiver. I think that's, that should be the way that you should be attacking drafts. But the reason why I think that Harris is the better option is because he is cheaper. We did see Latavius Murray had five touchdowns last year. And he did play with Buffalo last year. So there is opportunity for someone else besides Allen to get rushing touchdowns. I don't really expect Cook to be too much in that role unless they're somewhat further away from the reds or from the end zone in the red zone and he gets a dump off or he gets space because of the fact they have to play Allen the way they have to in the red zone. But Cook for me is one more or less more or less one of the the players that you're placing your bet on. He's someone that I'm not going to, based on the fact that he's never really had the history to be able to handle such such a load. He will have some efficiency in his runs just because of the way that Josh Allen needs to be defended, but so will the rest of the backs in this backfield as well. So I'm going to go with the guy that I think is going to be more or less on the goal end, and that's going to be Harris. So with Harris, I'm, I'm playing him more or less. If I have to play him, I'm playing him more or less to play for the touchdown, which will you know give you probably a minimum 10 points up to probably 14, 15 at a good game. So that's the way I would run with this, but I don't really see a starter in this backfield that I really want to be putting into my lineup on a consistent basis. Yeah. Um, it's tough to disagree, right? I think Damien Harris, the problem with him is he's never really the type of back that we're going to go out and target because 20 targets is really kind of the ceiling I see here for Damien Harris. I don't expect him to get significantly more than that. Without that, he's just not going to give you the impact you want in a fantasy lineup unless he's getting an unreal amount of touchdowns, which we mm-hmm. have seen in one past season, but it was an unsustainable mark. And then obviously mm-hmm. he's also fought injuries throughout his entire career. So he's he's a really tough player to, to take if you are drafting Damian Harris. I think he's more or less just a player you have on your bench that you anticipate throwing in when the Bills play somebody that they're going to crush. And their schedule this year is a little tougher. So unless have a couple teams are much worse than we expect, I don't see necessarily a guaranteed blowout game until maybe Bills Patriots, maybe Bills Raiders. So, the, and so that's the bet you're making there. Now, you didn't talk much on James Cook. Um, people who follow us know we just aren't that into James Cook. He's 5'11", 199 to 27 BMI. He split a room in Georgia. He split a room last year. He's never gotten a bulk load of touches. Historically speaking, if you're going to make a bet that James Cook is going to suddenly be an RB1, the players who have done it are your CJ Spillers, your Jamal Charles, your Christian McCaffrey's. There's one or two other guys. And 
every single one of them had that first round draft capital. They were all came into the league. They were seen as special. There's a big difference between a player like Jameer Gibbs and a player like James Cook coming mm-hmm. in. And that translates, right? With James Cook, you are expecting an unprecedented and outlier situation for James Cook to hit. And I don't like to bet on outliers, especially when you're taking him above five or six wide receivers that Tim mentioned that could all be weekly flexes, guys that are in your lineup more often than not. I think James Cook gives people a false sense of security. They think that they're locking in the lead back on a top five offense, and they see that as their zero RB solution. I faded RB. Now I got James Cook at pick 74 um, because I couldn't wait any longer. And if you are going to wait that long, I would just say wait another 20 picks and go grab um, Antonio Gibson, a player who might just outscore James Cook altogether. Well, James Cook, when you just go through, like simple numbers, you look through with projections, right? I have um, Buffalo coming in around 420 to 430 rushing attempts on that team. You're going to take 120 away for Josh Allen and the wide receivers to get carried. So we're going to be left with about 310. That's where I have it in that running back room. Explaining out in a room with Damian Harris and Latavius Murray that James Cook is going to see you're going to need over 200 opportunities here for James Cook for him to offer you top 24 upside. I am at 120 carries. I have Harris at 125. Latavius Murray around 50. Uh, I have, and then I have the like 15 other rushes getting scattered around whoever fills in uh, when needed. I don't see where James Cook suddenly gets up to 150, 160, 170 carries, which what he would need to give you that more upside position. I think I am down for 56 targets, which I think to be honest is a little generous. Um, I think that's maybe a higher median outcome there for James Cook because they haven't historically used any wide receiver or any running back like that. Uh, but with Devin Singletary gone, he did get the bump from me because Damon Harris doesn't seem to be that guy. And I don't know if Latavius Murray with a healthy Damon Harris gets the amount of snaps he would need to vulture away from James Cook the way we would want. The problem with Latavius Murray for me is he's the type of guy who might come in on that one yard line and just take a beating away from Josh Allen while also keeping Harris and Cook healthy. And that would be the most frustrating aspect of this team. I would not be surprised at all of the Tavis Murray just plays that role for this entire season. Uh, he's done it at multiple points in his career where he just comes in and he's kind of this vulture for the guys that we want to be fantasy relevant because unless Harris gets hurt and they have a soft matchup, you're not going to be playing Latavius Murray. And he's been used like the veteran in the locker room in the preseason. So he's going to be around. And that really scares me. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm so far out on James Cook. Uh, I can't even be bothered, but that's, I agree. that's and, and, nothing to you. Another thing too with Cook is that he lacks a lot of balance. I, like, I don't even want to say contact balance because there's a lot of times when he's even trying to run routes or make breaks, it's it's not pretty. It's not it's not fluid. There's a lot of issues with it. So where yeah, if you're trying to run routes with him up the sideline, that as they showed in camp highlights, which I really don't take any camp highlights into consideration when I make these assessments. But if you're if you're expecting that type of um, production out of the passing game when it comes to James Cook, I'm not going to because cornerbacks are going to knock him on his ass or knock him off his route. And linebackers are not going to allow him to get to his his spot. So he's going to have to outrun him. And then you're really looking at a, uh, an issue with timing where Allen can roll out, but the threat of Allen running is a lot more than Allen passing, especially up the sideline. So yeah, I'm going to pass on Cook. I think that this ADP is pretty much awful. And like I said, I listed all of those receivers that are, I didn't even list, uh, Brian Robinson or Marquise Brown, also guys I would take over him. So, yeah, I'm just completely out. 
All right, we're going to keep moving on to the Chicago Bears backfield we have here where they took Russell Johnson in the fourth round. Khalil Herbert was one of the most efficient runners two years in a row over five yards per carry. And then they brought in Deonta Foreman, who has had decent spells uh, since coming back from the Achilles. A really solid running back room. Uh, ADPs are all, are all over the place. We have seen, um, at least in most platforms Khalil Herbert has had a little bit of a rise he currently sits at 92 with Roshan Johnson significantly after that point in Deontay Foreman undrafted in most leagues Tim are you interested in Khalil Herbert do you think the rise is fair and do you think either Foreman or Roshan Johnson are worth the last pick step well something interesting I want to bring up is he was 88 yesterday so he's actually dropped back four spots from when I looked at fancy data yesterday so he might have risen from a, a different floor, but he's he's kind of fallen back just a little bit in the last day or so. I do like Herbert as a running back. I don't like yards per carry stats as something as sticky or predictive for the next season, but I have to respect the fact that he did accomplish those marks. And I, do, I don't think he's a bad back. I just think that in terms of completeness, that Roshan's better. So I would rather take the, the shot on Roshan. But if I'm, let's say, for whatever reason, I need to target a running back just to make my room a little bit healthier. I can still make the bet that Herbert keeps the job. Like that that's still on the table. Like there is nothing set in stone that for sure Roshan's going to get it. That's just something of my opinion. But I still feel comfortable enough to look at him at 88 and say, hey, this is a guy I could take a shot on because he's if he keeps the job, he's gonna give me some pretty good marks when it comes to scoring week to week. And it's gonna be pretty consistent. Now, I actually like all of these backs. I even like Foreman just not in a way that I want to draft him. I, I still think Foreman's a pretty good back, so he could he could mix in pretty uh, consistently. But when it comes to like being on the goal line, I think it's either going to be Herbert or Roshan, and Foreman getting more of those um, dirty yards, the tough rushes when it comes to being between the 30s and things like that. So I would say, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable taking Herbert if I'm looking to strengthen a room, but also understanding that that role could change, but it, it also could not. And you might be getting yourself a top 18 back at this point if he ends up keeping it. And it's a pretty cheap cost to do that. Yeah, I don't think you necessarily even have to pick one guy in this running back room that you're going after. Um, Deonta Foreman is kind of the one I'll leave out of the picture entirely. Uh, nothing to him. He's been ineffective in a lot of ways. He just thrived on volume, and then he thrived on playing against the Falcons twice. Uh, that's where <laughs> the majority of his production came from. A lot of running backs made good paydays based on playing Atlanta in the past couple seasons. So with... Deonta Foreman, I think he's fine insurance. When they had uh, signed Deonta Foreman, which was to a basically nothing contract, one year, very, very low money, uh, essentially nothing guaranteed, they made that decision whilst they didn't exactly know what was going to happen with Dave Montgomery. He signed away. They didn't know Roshan Johnson was going to be there as a day three option. I don't think that they anticipated that being there. They ended up making that pick. And now they find themselves with a really deep running back room. Now, there might not be an elite guy in this room at all, but... They don't necessarily need it to be with all the attention that goes to Justin Fields. They just need, they need guys who can do, uh, take a little bit of the workload off, who can help pound a little bit more up the middle and who can hopefully help block when needed or called upon because uh, Justin Fields might not throw the ball to them, but he's going to need them to get into the way and put in a big hit when he tries to take it himself, which makes sense. When you have a guy as athletic as Justin Fields, why does he need to dump the ball off to a guy five feet away from him when he can just say, go, get you know clear the way and i will take it myself right and that's where khalil herbert struggled to get on the field last year he struggled to get past like that 30 percent snap mark and dave montgomery despite looking much less inspiring 
uh, was getting all the touches. And I think that the snaps came with Dave Montgomery because he could help protect Justin Fields. He could be that kind of that bruiser. And I think that's where the optimism comes here for Roshan Johnson. But we do say we don't want our running backs necessarily blocking. So I don't know if Roshan coming in and getting snaps uh, will necessarily translate to volume. But I do like that it at least gives him the opportunity to carve out a role and to get out there and to prove it and show himself. Because when you get that opportunity, then it's kind of on you, right? So I do like the last round kind of stab on Roshan Johnson. I just also don't mind Galil Herbert in round nine or round 10. If you are that zero B, I'd rather take him than James Cook, just especially based on cost. I think that Khalil Herbert is a very talented player. It's just my question around how much can he play? Can he be out there? I don't necessarily know if he's going to get third downs. He hasn't had more than 15 targets uh, so far in his career. I have him slightly bumped up, but I still have both him and Roshan in the 20s. I don't know if there we even see 60 targets going to this room. I projected at 59 for the reasons that we just mentioned with Justin Fields. So um, and, the ceiling could be kind of capped with any of these guys, but I don't mind the stab on either Khalil or Roshan in case Chicago's just a little better than we think they are. A little bit of a takeaway, too, is that um, they have shown to work in targets for the running back in the preseason. Once again, not trying to gleam a lot of this information because it could be absolutely different based on the pressures that the, the defense decides to design and, and call up. But each running back has had their targets in preseason. So it could be something where they do get consolidated and there is a little bit of work that provides value. Not something I'm saying to anticipate, but be aware that that is something that, is, that the offense is capable of doing. As well as I'm big on... I hate the argument that, well, this this offense was the, the volume was so bad last year. I'm not saying it's going to improve, but I think that's a really nearsighted way to project next year's offense because their offensive line was not very good last year. It's it started to get better, but even like the play calls when he first came in as a rookie, they were bad. They were running naked boots to the left side where the, the, the tackle was just getting eaten up where he had no room to operate, even in like a passing um, sense, not even a running sense. So I think that this offense could really take a step because of the fact that the design is better and the chemistry and the overall play of the offensive line improves, which then brings value to almost every position. So I think that if people are looking at, at the Bears offense through the last year's lens, they're doing themselves a disservice. And just give yourself that opportunity that it, they could be much improved or they could be a, a higher volume or, or just perform better. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I just, it, it's very, it's a lazy way to evaluate um, a team that's not the same team as it was last year. Yeah. It, it, the reason it's lazy is because you have to acknowledge outliers. You need to acknowledge regression towards the mean. And Chicago was unpredictably poor, unpredictably slow, unpredictably. Uh, poor with their offensive line play. They had the highest sack percentage since 2011, 13.3% last year. And you can pin some of that on Justin Fields trying to extend plays and make things happen, sure. But he's not the only mobile quarterback that has ever existed. They tend to be a little higher, but not 13.3%. There is there problems outside yeah. of Justin Fields with that. And even if that comes down to 10, 11%, which would still be potentially the highest in the league in any given year, that adds, you know, one or two extra plays to the game. You know, that adds, and that adds a lot. You do that, and maybe their pace of play comes up one or two plays. Now you have three or four more plays. Maybe the offense opens up a little bit because now they have a true number one wide receiver. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but it is naive and it is lazy to just presume they're going to be what they were last year because they aren't that same team. And that team last year also was a little bit of an outlier. They were worse than you could have predicted, and that doesn't always come back up. But historically it does come up at least a little bit. Things tend to come back and normalize. So I do like yep. the call there. Last stat too, just a little bit of comparison. Trevor Lawrence had 2.2 seconds to throw either 
by due to pressure or by his decision making to let go of the football, Justin Fields had 2.9. So either his processing, if his processing in, improves, or his receivers are able to get open faster because the quality of receivers have gone up, this offense should be much better. Okay. Comparatively to last year. Absolutely. So we are going to keep things moving here. Guys, we have Indianapolis as a group that we're going to talk about. Now, this one isn't necessarily for this big, exciting battle, but Jonathan Taylor is out for four weeks at least because they did not trade him by the deadline for them to keep him on the PUP list or not. So the PUP list means that he has to be out through at least week four. We know this. There's nothing we can do about it. And here we sit. You guys might have already drafted Jonathan Taylor, or you might have your drafts coming up this weekend or next week, and you want to know, what do I do with Jonathan Taylor? Or is he somebody that I'm going to go try to trade for? Maybe even you dynasty players can take a little bit away from this. It's a two-parter, Tim. Uh, I'll let you start and tell me what it is you plan to do with Jonathan Taylor. How far are you letting him slide in drafts before you're willing to take the chance on him? And then the second part, which I will I'll hop in here and give my opinion once you do, is... Deion Jackson or Evan Hole? Which one are you going to go with? Let's start with where you're comfortable taking Taylor in drafts. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be the one that's going to be passing on Taylor. I know that even just a week ago we talked about that you take your studs and he was falling. You take him, but I think that this could get really ugly. There's a, a few reasons for that. Is that Ursa has been very public about disrespecting Taylor and his value as well as demanding a lot in trades. So basically, he's playing both sides of the coin. But Taylor needs to needs to play. He needs to have certain games under his belt to um, have this year count. So I think that there's an opportunity that he plays. There's also an opportunity where he feigns an injury after he he hits his uh, necessary amount of games played, and he's just done for the season. So that's my concern. Now, if he plays, I, I have no doubts that his. I don't actually. I don't think he's hurt. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, so if he plays, I have no doubt that he's going to reach very good ceilings of production. But this is just another situation where I just. I'm. It's an avoid for me because why give myself a headache when I can look at you know a different uh, a different player that I could probably try to target. And that's kind of where I stand on the whole JT saga. Like we were having discussions in, in dynasty groups about moving JT, and someone said they had an offer of DK, and I said just get get rid of the headache. Like I, I understand that JT is the more valuable asset, but. It, is the value in the fact that you can play DK. I think that might be important to discuss as well. So in this situation, it's just not worth it to me in a redraft setting where every week matters so much. And you really don't have space on your bench to be housing players that aren't producing points for you, especially if they don't, I know he's on the, he's going to be on the pup, but there's, there might be a situation in which, you know, you get him for four weeks and then he go, goes back on pup. Like, what does that really do for you? Yeah, no, I think it depends just how far, right? So in ADP, he's slid back to 43. I think that's a little bit slow. Um, I did, I was in a draft with, again, one of one of my friends helping them draft just the other day. And we were around pick 70 and he was there. And that's where I was like, I, I can't stomach letting him pass. I just can't do it. It's just not a part of me. I know maybe it'd be smart to just pass and go on, but around pick 70, we're taking... Yes, we like Christian Kirk, but it's Christian Kirk. It was Dallas Goddard. It was DeAndre Swift, James Cook, Michael Pittman. Those were the names next straight after Jonathan Taylor. And I'm like, I feel like, and especially in a lot of your leagues, you guys are listening to us. You're on Twitter. You're watching other YouTube channels. You're probably a little bit ahead of your league mates. You're a little bit more prepared. I like my chances to go find a guy who can give me the same type of production as any of those names I just mentioned. And then if Taylor does play, I just potentially got a round two pick. 
in the seventh round or the sixth round, and I can put him on my IR for four weeks. The majority of leagues have an IR spot. If you don't, I think that does change things here where I might just want to stay away because if your league doesn't have an IR, it's probably also a thinner bench. And at that point, I value the flexibility. I might just let it be someone else's headache, but I find it really hard personally. I will be honest to pass on Jonathan Taylor once we get to a certain part in the draft. Like looking at a player like Alvin Kamara, am I going to take Alvin Kamara over Jonathan Taylor? Like this is the part of the draft we're talking about. And uh, I find myself saying no. I find myself taking Taylor there. At least I have. Uh, and that could come to bite me. I think that's more where you sit personally. Uh, this has come to bite me in the past. Maybe not as early or as big of a name, but I have historically gone and taken stabs on players. Maybe like a you know two years ago, Michael Thomas, you took in round nine when he was slated to miss the first four weeks. And it historically doesn't work out for you. So I don't mind Tim's uh, approach here to be apprehensive about the whole situation. I just personally see... An upside that that players around Taylor cannot provide, and then I see an opportunity to get ahead of league mates that I have confidence that I can get one up on. Right? Maybe if you don't feel like you're in that position within your league, you might also want to uh, uh, behave differently. Or if you're in, you know, a Twitter league or guys who are just as active, and you might not beat them necessarily to the names. Or if you don't have Fab, you're on a waiver claim system and you can't guarantee yourself if there's a guy out there in the wire that he's going to end up on your team. So I can understand a lot of ways to fight either side here. It seems Tim and I are a little split, but I think it's completely justified. I think it's probably a little bit safer, of course, to go with Tim's direction here, but I can't, I can't get myself to pass him once we get into the sixties. I just, I can't do it. Round six, round seven for Jonathan Taylor. Just it's tough. It's tough for me. I like to say it's a month he's got to get out there at some point. And if he plays, I'd like to think that they just either suck it up for a season and figure it out. Or, you know, he goes on his way somewhere else because we've seen this not work out for other running backs when they stick around a little too long or refuse to play. And I would just like to think for Jonathan Taylor, you're upset. You're not going to get paid and you're going to make a decision. That's going to lead you to not get paid more or, or again, or down the line, if you know what I'm saying. So Hopefully he has seen a couple of the other holdout situations. I know this isn't a holdout, but it, it feels that way. I agree with you. I don't know how serious that injury is because just a few weeks ago, he was saying, I'm not hurt. Uh, who's telling you that? And then now he's on the pup. So um, I, I would just like to add too, is that I get it because let's say, even if he was like ADP of 12 before all this news, which still would be low, but you're looking at a 58, 58 uh, pick difference. So I understand that. But for me, if you're still talking sixth, seventh round, we're talking valuable players where if you, if if Taylor doesn't play, you're basically weakening. This is this is my position. You're basically weakening two positions versus even just one. And because then you're give, you're foregoing either a wide receiver two or a wide receiver three. If you take a wide receiver in this range, which you should, because they're so good in terms of value. But that's where I kind of sit. I, I I agree that if he plays, if he's if he comes back after four weeks and he plays, he could. He could be a league winner, especially at that ADP. So I respect those that make that decision, especially those that were doing the same thing with Kamara before the suspension came back, where you could get him around nine or later. Like that's that's a risk that a lot of people were taking. And um, I think it's a little bit different because Kamara, current, current Kamara is not the same caliber player as current Jonathan Taylor. So you might have someone that has that kind of same risk appetite or same profile that would, that would look at even taking both. Like that's an opportunity too. I'm just less less inclined to do it because I just don't want to start behind the eight ball when it comes to redraft just because the the, the weeks are so limited. You don't have the um, 
assets because you don't have future picks, things like that, like you do in Dynasty, to go and make moves to supplement supplement your play because everyone's trying to win. So it's a little bit more of a competitive environment even on the waiver wire. That's the reason why I'm I'm staying away, but I can respect those that take that risk because I'll do that in other situations. It won't bat an eye. So I completely understand. Yeah, but now I got to throw it to you, right? We have a month without him. Uh, we have the rookie quarterback. We have an offense that might really struggle, but it's a wide open running back room. Both pieces that are currently there fighting for the job in Deion Jackson and Evan Hole are probably on your waiver wire. Before you give me which of the two you prefer, I will say Zach Moss does exist. He's a player who was there. He probably might end up being the lead back here uh, if he was 100%, but he did have an injury, broke a bone, and he is coming back. I don't think or anticipate that he will be there for week one or possibly even week two. They haven't put him on the pup out to be up four weeks alongside Taylor yet, so he could come back and just ruin both of these guys. But if you had to take the risk on Deion Jackson, who's came in and had a couple okay performances in Taylor's absences last year, or Evan Hole, a rookie from Northwestern who has a good size, speed combo, decent production, which is your go-to of the two? It's got to be Hull. Like, I, I liked what Deion Jackson did last year. He showed me some dynamic, but he was very, very touchdown laden, where the pen, dependency on him actually having a good week was that he scored one or two touchdowns. Um, So, like, that's where I, I lean, and I think Hull isn't getting enough respect for the fact that he was able to carry such a heavy load at Northwestern. Now, for me, like in my evaluation is that it's like even I'm just referring back to Dynasty. He was a fourth round pick, late third round pick for me. So I didn't evaluate him super high. But in in an offense where you're most likely just looking for a guy that can carry the bulk, but is capable in both the passing and receiving game, it's Hull. It just is. And so you could look at Jackson having dynamic moments. But if you're looking for something that gives you floor with um, the bulk of carries and the majority, uh, most likely bulk of receptions, however limited that is with Richardson. I mean, Hull's got to be the pick. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I've taken Evan Hull as the guy I've picked up here. He he checks at least all the athletic measurements we need. I think what Deion Jackson did is he was just a big body, six foot two twenty, who came in and he was wildly inefficient. I know you don't, I know you don't like yards per carry metrics, but when you're performing behind the exact same line in the exact same opportunities, you've got Zach Moss, Zacchaeus Malik Moss, out here getting four point nine yards per carry, and then Deion Jackson's coming in and giving you three point three. I think there is a difference there. There's a discrepancy. He was no, a little reliant on those touchdowns. Yeah. It was volume-based for him in the couple of weeks he did come in. And I would like to think Evan Hole is kind of the guy who offers a little bit more, a little bit more speed. He hopefully can get be a little more effective in the passing game. And he's big enough to pound in a touchdown if that's really all they need him to do. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm right there with you on Evan Hole. There's also talk that Jackson was going to get cut too. Like there were rumors. I, I, there's, I'm not substantiating anything. So like he wasn't even safe, you know, a month ago. So now, I well, he, he wasn't safe six months ago either. If you guys do recall, it was a different coaching staff. But after Taylor came back last year, Dion was almost cut because I guess he had a like a verbal screaming match, if I'm recalling correctly, with the coaching staff there. There was something there at the end of last year where Dion Jackson almost found his way out of town. So Again, that could be absolutely a nothing here, but it is a good little thing add here is uh, sometimes the fresh face gets the the fair chance. So hopefully mm-hmm. one of those guys can return value. I don't think you're going to be playing any of them in week one unless you find yourself really desperate um, or you're in just a much deeper league or a dynasty format. So I don't think you have to worry about that, but I think it's very much worth the stash, right? The Colts play Houston in week two and 
Houston last year was horrific. Teams just ran all over them because they didn't have to throw. They got ahead and they crushed them and they didn't have a good rush defense to begin with. So there is some potential, at least if we get clarity in week one, who is going to get the bulk of the touches, they might end up being a sleeper sneaky start in week two. You'll have to come in and check the square scare and prayer segment with Tim and I, when we give you our start sit picks, our little uh, quirky way to give you a few players to think about for your upcoming weeks. You'll have to check and see if we have Evan Holt or Deion Jackson as a, uh, a prayer pick for week two. We're going to keep this thing pushing. We are going to talk about Denver, the Denver backfield. Obviously, Sean Payton coming into town. It's been a really weird offseason for them. They've had a lot of injuries. They've had a little bit of weird drama between him and Nathaniel Hackett. They've had Russell Wilson reportedly getting into better shape. Um, Javante Williams was, well, he's going to be slow. Now he's not. They brought in some Andre P. Ryan, who's going to be more involved. Now people don't know what the splits are going to be. Tim, clear the air. What are your initial thoughts on this Denver backfield, and how have you been applying that to your fantasy drafts? I got to be honest. Javante is one of my my guys. I just I got I got to put that out there. But I understand that most likely he's not going to start out 100. He's not going to start out with the bulks. So like I could very much see that there's going to be a slow start to his fantasy season. But when it comes to you know the coaching staff there, I really like having uh, Sean Payton there. But also we don't know how that mix is going to be distributed because we even look back to New Orleans, right? We've seen a bunch of no-name players have great weeks in fantasy playoffs. Tim Hightower comes to mind. You know, Pierre Thomas has had uh, certain um, experiences for people. So it, there, there's an, is an opportunity where Samaje comes and plays spoiler. But I just think Javante is so talented that if he comes back and he is healthy, which from the reports before um, even like the last like couple weeks is that like when he first came out, he, he was, you know, nearly back. So I get it where they're. They're coming out slow because you got to use them all season. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to put my stamp on it. I, I love Javante this year. So I'm going to call him one of my guys and I'm just going to move on. Love the ADP. You know, if he falls a little bit better or falls a little bit later, that's even better for me. But if I'm targeting Javante, I'm going to make sure that my I have at least two pretty studly wide receivers and he's either going to be my, my running back three or my running or at worst, or I'm saying at worst for me, he's going to be running back two, but I'm hoping he's going to be my, my work. My running back three. I'm excuse me. I can't talk right now. <laughs> no, you're good. He's still coming out as the running back 27. So he's still a player that you're getting potentially as your third back. Or if you had a hero guy and you waited and you got great wide receivers, you're getting Javante as your running back too. And I've loved him. I've been taking him all off season. He's been one of my most roster running backs in best ball drafts. But it is like what we were talking about with that last section where when your risk appetite was a little higher, he was a lot cheaper. He has risen now. Um, uh, fantasy that is saying for PPR, he's at pick 70. I do think that has creeped up on other sites. He's in the 50s, as high as in the 50s. So, and I think that's appropriate. I think that's a spot where he's still, it's, but it's much more of a thinker, right? It's a spot where he still has value, but it's much more of a thinker kind of spot. I have to pause mm -hmm. on it where when he was in the 70s or the 80s, it was a no brainer for me to take Javante Williams and inherit the risk that is associated with his injuries. But if he's out there, I don't even need this guy to be out there playing more than 40, 50% of the snaps to return on where I'm drafting him because I just want him to be RB2. I don't want him to be, you know, a top five running back like where people were taking him a year ago when he was a top 18 pick at times in people's drafts. I think with Javante Williams, he his safety lies within the passing game. Sean Payton, 
every single Sean Payton team since 2011 has given at least 20% of the targets to the running back position. And that is above league average. That's usually around like 18, 19%. So it's above league average that they target that position. And with injuries to all of these wide receivers and a, a, a brand new system, I would like to think that they might lean on that position. And if it's not pounding the ball, uh, on the ground, it could be a little bit of these dump offs, especially now that Russell Wilson isn't the same mobile guy who's going to take it. That's the problem you're we saying with mobile cutters before, where they might not necessarily want to dump it off four yards because why not? If they can use their legs, use that guy as a blocker to get ahead of them, and then they can go out on their own. Russell Wilson isn't that guy anymore. He doesn't really try to do that all too often. And I would like to think that there's going to be at least 100 targets to go around in that running back room. And I don't really care if it's 60 to Samaje and 40 to Javante or 40 to Samaje and 60 to Javante because either way both of those players are going to perform better than their ADP with that type of volume so I currently have it split the latter where I have uh, Javante at 60 Samaje at 40 and both of those put them in contention for RB2 finishes and um if I had to put bet, there are only a few backfields that I think really could have somebody finish top 24. You can correct me if I'm missing one, but I really think that there's Denver, Detroit, maybe Seattle. Uh, I'm a little less bullish on that one, but there aren't a ton of backfields every single year. Where you could say two guys could finish top 24. And just from the history we have with Sean Payton, the current landscape of this Broncos team, I think that there's a very good chance at those two. Maybe the Jets, that's if you're looking around, would be another one I'll throw out there. But that's where I stand right now on that backfield in Denver. I like both at their cost. I really do. Also, one one last thing I want to point out is when I look at this ADP currently, and it may be different based on your platform, like we're going to continue to keep saying. But to me, there are there are pockets of value and there are pockets of like over overdrafting players and i feel like just behind javante there are there is that pocket where people are going to get overdrafted so there might be a, a situations in which either he gets dropped down or because of the fact that these for me these sub-tier players the less players uh, the players that are less talented or have less um valuable situations are going to go above some in the 70s that are way um, more appealing to me i think that even if you were to take him like at his adp that it's not terrible because if you even look just directly behind him like Al alexander madison's right behind him you know and then we have like drake london jerry judy dalvin's right right there isaiah pacheco connor goddard kamara and then we hit the 70s we get lockett rashad white Ayuk, montgomery james cook Kirk Godwin Evans, like those are way better situations in those early seventies than like even any of those players in the sixties. So that's how I'm kind of approaching it is that even if I take him at ADP, I'm not really missing out for an entire round if ADP follows like it's supposed to, but it might not even apply to Javante. It might apply to someone else completely different. Once you start reviewing ADP before the draft starts and say, Hey, this, this section's kind of bad. So I might just try to avoid that section by either drafting someone even below them or knowing that I'm not really reaching on, a, on this player that's right there because other players are going to be taking these guys and these guys are not going to perform even nearly close to their ADP. All right. I'm right there with you guys. I think that's a good spot to stop here for the part one of this video. We're going to have a second part with the rest of five more running back rooms that we really want to pay attention to. So please come back and find a part two with us, guys. You can find Tim at Nubs2Ns2Bs on Twitter, me at the FFFO, all things JWB at JW underscore FF. Get in our Discord top of the description. You can find our Clips catalog, which is also in the description. We have a player take on basically anyone that you can think of that is currently in the NFL. We got a player take on them for Dynasty and or 
redraft. So please go check it out. Uh, and we will catch you guys very shortly. See you.